Thank you, everyone. That's very kind of you. It's good to be with you today. Some of you may know me, but for those who don't, just a little bit about myself. As PJ mentioned, my name's Annual. I'm on staff here at the King's Arms, and currently I split my time between my studies and I oversee the children's ministry here at the 11.30 a.m. service. Here is a picture of me that's going to come up in a, right there, yeah. The kids, they wanted to dress us up as superheroes that morning. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I don't always get to join you here in the adult service, partly because I'm doing things like that, but also because we have so many kids here at the King's Arms. It's incredible, isn't it? Praise God. So good. We are a very productive church, everyone. Keep up the good work. You're keeping me in a job, so thank you. And yeah, but you know, I'm very excited to be with you today and looking forward to seeing what God wants to reveal to us through his word. We're going to be reading from Matthew 16 today. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 20. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to that. It should come up on the slide behind me. I'll begin by reading it for us. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. I read a study that was done in 2013 here in the UK, which looked at various professions and measured which profession got asked the most questions per hour. Can anybody guess what profession that was? Go on, you can shout out. I work with kids, I promise you can't scare me, I promise. Sorry? Teachers, close. Teachers came in at fifth with 18 questions per hour. It's very good. Doctors, doctors and nurses, they came in at fourth with 19 per hour. You guys are doing well. Wow, you've got two of them already. I'll tell you what, I'm going to stop you there. Because in first place were mothers. Oh, I know, I know. All the mums are nodding their heads. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very true. And, you know, this study, it surveyed 1,000 mothers with children between the ages of 2 and 10 and found that mums get asked an astonishingly 288 questions across a 12 and a half hour day. That is one question every two minutes and 36 seconds. That's incredible. And you know, poor mums, dads, you've got to help because in this study, they asked the children why they so often went to their mums. And they found that 24% of the children said that their dad had told them to go and ask their mum. Yeah. You know, and questions they are so important about 11 years ago I was uh, studying in college and I wasn't a Christian I'd never been to church but a friend of mine on that same course he would often share small things about his faith and he would talk about Jesus each week he would ask me the same question would you like to go to church on Sunday and each week I would say no now despite this 
He never gave up asking, and he never seemed to take offense to how I responded. Each week, he'd ask me the same question, and each week, I would decline his offer. Eventually, after about a year, I said yes. And this question, it completely changed my life. What questions have you been asked that have changed your life? Jesus, he asked many questions. A theologian once counted and found that Jesus asked 307 questions in the New Testament. And in this particular passage that we have just read, Jesus asks the most important question ever asked. It is a question that everybody one day will have to give an answer to. Who is Jesus? We're going to look at this question today. In fact, we're going to look at three questions that this passage raises. Firstly, who is Jesus? Second, how do we get to this answer? And lastly, what does this answer mean for us and our lives? How does that sound? Is that okay? Good, good. So this part in Matthew's gospel, it is considered the high point. It is the climactic moment that everything preceding it has built up to. If you were hearing this for the first time, and for some of you, you might be, at this point, we have learned more and more about who Jesus is. Here's a little bit of a recap of some of the significant events. The disciples, they have marveled at Jesus calming a storm and asked the question, what sort of man is this that even the wind and seas obey him? The crowds, they've been astonished by his teaching because he taught with an authority that they had never, ever heard before. He has given a voice to the mute, sight to the blind, and many have been healed through his power. However, we're left on a bit of a cliffhanger here because Jesus himself has not explicitly stated who he is. He has left it to the hearer, the crowds, and the disciples to draw their own conclusions. And this cliffhanger, this high point, it is exposed through a question. And Jesus, he chooses to ask it in quite an interesting place. We see in verse 13 that Jesus and his disciples, they went to a Greco-Roman city called Caesarea Philippi. Now this place, it was about 25 miles from where they originally were. You can see it on this map, that red arrow shows the journey they took. So essentially, Jesus took his disciples on a 25-mile hike to ask a question. The next slide shows some pictures of Caesarea Philippi. I had the opportunity to visit there last year. I got to walk through the area, breathe in the air, and I got to see with my own eyes the magnitude of this mountain. It is quite extraordinary, and if you look closely, you'll see what looks like a cave. Now, this cave, it was believed to be a gate. Keep that word in mind. It was a gate to hell, they believed. A gate to the underworld. It was like a, a portal or a door to the demonic where people believed that false gods would travel between this world and the underworld. Caesarea Philippi had become the religious center for the worship of the Greek god Pan. And Pan, he was described as having the body of a man, legs of a goat, horns. One of Pan's supposed attributes was to induce fear. The words panic, pandemic, dare I say it, they, they find their origin back to this idea of Pan. And to entice the return of Pan, people, they would carry out acts of sexual immorality, of sacrifice. In Jesus' day, 
it was a very, very dark place. And the importance of this place was that it emphasized the conflict between God and the powers of this world. And from all the places Jesus could have asked this question, he chose this one. As a prerequisite, a bit of a warm-up question, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? The disciples, they had likely mingled with the crowd, so they would have had an understanding of who they believe Jesus to be. What type of box has Jesus been placed in? You'll notice also that Jesus, he uses a title for himself, the Son of Man. This was a unique title. Others had claimed to be the Messiah. Roman rulers referred to themselves as sons of God. But only Jesus dared to call himself the Son of Man. No one else referred to him this way. And using this title, it landed Jesus in hot water. Three out of the four times he was accused of blasphemy, which, by the way, had the penalty of death, it was because he used this title for himself. And to fully understand its meaning, we need to go all the way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, it reads, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In this prophetic, in this prophetic dream, Daniel, he sees a figure called the Son of Man. Now, we know this figure is divine, because he is riding a cloud. You know, if you ever look out your window and you see somebody riding a cloud, it is a fair assumption to say that they are divine. And he sits on a throne next to God's. He rules the world and he is worshipped by all of humanity. And only Jesus ever used this title to describe himself. The reply to this question from the disciples is similar in many ways to what you may find if you went out and asked others who they believed Jesus to be. The disciples, they give the names of three prominent prophets of God, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. These were important people who carried a message of justice for the poor, warning and judgment for the wicked, and the coming of an age where peace and joy would be everlasting. It is clear that the people, they had good thoughts about Jesus, but not necessarily the right thoughts. A survey was carried out which looked at people's perception of Jesus in modern day Britain. Here are the results. They found that 33% of adults believe Jesus to simply be a prophet, just as they had done in his day. 25% believed he was a normal human being, and only 20% believed he was God in human form. 57% of adults and 63% of young people did not believe in the resurrection. The world today often limits Jesus to being a wise teacher who gives good suggestions, or somebody who is accepting and tolerant of everything. Just as the world back then hadn't fully grasped who Jesus is, there are many in our world today who haven't either, or have placed him into a box of their own creating. After this introductory question, 
in a place where false worship and idolatry were rampant and the gates of hell were believed to have stood, Jesus now challenges his disciples to discern who he truly is. But who do you say that I am, he asks. Now, I don't know about you, but I've often found it easier to declare the truth of Jesus, to firmly believe in this truth when things are going well. What happens, though, <clears throat> when we struggle to see where Jesus is in those desperate situations? In prayer, where we have asked, but we have not received. When we knock, but the door seems shut. Are we able to declare his power and authority in sickness through disappointment when there is a cost? Just as the disciples had been challenged, this is our challenge. Peter, likely being the spokesperson of the group, he announces, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter's answer, it is remarkable for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because Peter is saying that this, this rabbi, this carpenter, he is the hope of the world. Secondly, Peter's response is given added meaning and power precisely because he declares it in the face of worldly and demonic forces. Peter's words there initially met with positivity from Jesus. But despite getting the words right, Peter actually gets the meaning wrong. We know this from the latter verses where Jesus rebukes Peter, just as the crowds had put Jesus into a box. Peter's box for Jesus did not include suffering and death. Glory and an earthly victory are at the forefront of Peter's mind, not the painful and shameful death of the cross. The disciples and Peter, they could not see that Jesus was going to die. This is what they missed. What do we fail to see about Jesus' identity? Are there things in our lives, experiences, that have impacted the truth of who Jesus is? I used to be an electrician and I would often go into many different properties and speak to lots of different people. I would often share that I was a Christian and talk about Jesus. I'd usually cut the power as well so they didn't really have much of a choice but to listen to me. And one person I spoke to, she told me that she went to church for much of her youth. At age five, she would go to church by herself. Imagine that, you know, safeguarding in the 70s, everyone. But, you know... She loved hearing about Jesus. When she was 17 turning 18, she got pregnant outside of marriage. She told me that she no longer felt as welcome at church as she had done before. The way people looked at her, she told me, sometimes spoke about her. She slowly drifted away from church and she slowly drifted away from Jesus. This experience with other people, it impacted who Jesus was for her. Charles Darwin, the father of evolution theory and often seen as an enemy to Christianity. But did you know that he was a man of faith for the first 30 to 40 years of his life? He was even trained as an Anglican minister. However, as the years went by, he began backsliding in his faith. The loss of his father, various other things had impacted his beliefs. What seemed to be the final straw, though, was his daughter Annie contracting tuberculosis shortly after his father had passed. 
Despite prayer, she sadly passed at the age of 10. Whatever faith he had left in a good God, it died with his daughter. This monumental tragedy, it impacted who Jesus was for Darwin. And there are so many things that can impact the truth of who he is for us. Thankfully, scripture can bring us back to this truth. A feature of Matthew's gospel, which we're reading from today, is that he continually references the Old Testament to uncover the identity of Jesus. And the Old Testament, it has all these ideas, these images, these phrases that unveil who the future king will be. And Matthew, he pulls on these and shows how Jesus is the promised one in the Old Testament. For Matthew, unlike the children of God, Adam and Eve, who were disobedient in the Garden of Eden, Jesus, he is the child of God, obedient in the Garden of Gethsemane. Unlike Isaac, Abraham's son who God spared, Jesus is the sacrifice son who gave of himself. Jesus is the true Israel who embodies everything God called his people to be. He is the promised land. He is God in the flesh. Father, the Father and he are one. Before the world came into existence was he. He had always been and all things have been made through him. He is the roaring lion of Judah whose ruling staff shall not leave his feet. He is the spotless lamb who reigns on his throne from heaven. He is the perfect one who had nothing to repent for, yet perfectly repented on our behalf. He is the prince of peace where we find rest from the labors of life. He is the suffering servant wounded for our transgressions. He is the righteous one who does not walk in step with the wicked. He is the good shepherd who protects, guides, and gave his life for his sheep. And he is victorious. This is Jesus. Or, or maybe we recognize his power and authority, but we miss his relatability. He feels distant and impersonal to us. This next slide shows Amy Carmichael, and she was a missionary. She was born in 1867 in Northern Ireland, and she devoted her life to serving the Lord in India. She was known as a mother to the motherless, and she spent her time caring for orphans and unwanted and abused children. Amy Carmichael, she established an orphanage which looked after temple girls forced into prostitution. Throughout her ministry, she rescued thousands of children and through prayer, God had provided her with a hospital and a hostel to care for those children. One day, while walking through the construction site of their new hospital, she suffered a fall, which resulted in a broken leg and the twisting of her spine. Despite efforts to restore her mobility, she was left bedridden for the last 20 years of her life and in constant pain. She deeply feared being a burden to others and didn't want the ministry God had started to be hindered. But in her suffering and difficult situation, she found solace in Revelation 2 verses 9 to 10. It reads, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, 
and I will give you life as your victor's crown. She wrote two short sentences from this passage. From verse 9, I know. From verse 10, fear not. In these words of Jesus, she found comfort in these two truths, that Jesus knew her affliction and that Jesus commanded her to not be afraid. You know, whatever you're going through today, whatever you're struggling with, he understands. If it's physical pain you are experiencing, he endured the cross, which was so cruel that the Roman politician Cicero believed even the word crucifixion should not be heard. He knows our struggles. He was tempted three times in the wilderness with things that none of us would turn down, and yet he still lived a perfect sinless life. He knows loneliness. He was abandoned by those closest to him in his darkest moments. He knows shame. The cross, that was a public shaming aimed to cast embarrassment and humiliation on not just him, but his friends, his family, everybody associated with him. He knows and experienced all the pain and suffering we could ever feel. And he chose to do this. He came off his throne in heaven when he didn't have to, to live a life as a poor Jewish carpenter and die the painful death of a criminal, all so that he could know us and we could know him, to show his great love for us. This is Jesus. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you're experiencing, he knows and he tells you to fear not. This is our Lord. So how do we get to this answer. In the study that looked at how many questions children asked their mothers, they also found that 61% of mothers did not know the questions to the answers their children asked. 51% admitting that they rely on search engines such as Google to find those answers. And the internet, it provides us with all the answers to all the questions we could ever ask. But to truly answer the question that Jesus asks, Google or any other search engine will not help you. In verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying that Peter's answer isn't by human effort, human cleverness, teaching. It is divine revelation directly from our Father in heaven. This is a wisdom and knowledge that surpasses human faculties. This is a God thing. A few years ago, I was in the children's ministry, and one of the young girls, she was eight, she brought in this notepad, and partway through the session, I saw her writing in it. So I went over to her, and I asked her what it was. She told me it was her prayer book. It's awesome, right? So I'm always so proud when they do stuff like this. And, and so I said to her, I said, oh, that means you must be writing in there the things that you want to pray for. She looked up at me, she rolled her eyes, and she said, no, not the things I want to pray for, the things God wants me to pray for. I was like, wow, I feel so stupid right now, but this is incredible, I love it. It's, you know, she understood walking with God. She understood revelation. She was seeking his voice and his heart. The things he wanted had now become the things she wanted. And this sums up, in simple terms, revelation. And revelation from God, that often comes with relationship with God. And relationship is what we were made for. 
We were not made to simply know of him, but to know him on a deep and personal level that places him at the center of everything in our lives. One of the ways to knowing God is spending time in scripture, allowing the Holy Spirit to shed light on the person of Jesus. This information, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it leads to illumination. It changes the way we think, the way we see things, which then leads to our transformation, a commitment to Jesus and allowing the will of God to lead our lives. Not only are we to read our Bible, but we are to follow it. We are doers of the word, not just hearers. I don't always have the power to do the things I know I should, the power to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And this is where we must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This creates a spirit-filled obedience in us where we can follow Christ because of the Spirit's work in us and living obedient lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and carrying out his will shows that we know our Lord. Also, hearing his voice and seeking his face. Knowing God is about being receptive to his voice. We are continually encouraged to seek his face, which means to desire his presence above all else. To recognize his voice and see his face, we need to spend time with him. Spend time in his presence. Not simply seeking his gifts or his promise of eternity, but seeking him. Our God is a relational God, not a distant God. He wants us to know him. We can spend all day with Christians, go to every house group, every church event, watch sermons, even preach sermons. None of that means that you know him. Spend time with the Lord. Come to know the Savior. That is the greatest gift we could ever have in this life. So what does knowing Jesus mean for who we are and what we do? One of the ways that Google analyzed the millions upon millions of questions that they get is to break them down into categories. Who, what, why, when, how. The most Google Googled who-related question in 2023 in the world is who am I? We have an identity crisis in the world, in particular the Western world. Who am I? And from this, what is the purpose of my life? These are questions, important questions, that we all need the answer to. However, we are told that the most authoritative place to seek this answer, the most trustworthy place to find it, is inward. I feel, therefore, I am. That is the new mantra of the Western world. Apparently, the answer lies within us. Instead of looking inward, though, I suggest we start looking upward for our identity. Who am I is the wrong question. The question the world needs to be asking is who is Jesus? Because who we say Jesus is directly impacts who we believe we are. Instead of starting with you are, we are, or I am, let's begin with he is. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Paul states how we now live in Christ and not ourselves. 
We no longer belong to this world in its ways. We are a transformed, forgiven new people who live for Christ to serve others and to share the good news. And this new identity, it is emphasized in verse 18. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, there are few passages in the whole of the Bible that are as controversial as that one. Who is the rock that Jesus is referring to? Even among the scholars and the early church fathers, there is a host of opinions, so you will not find a singular answer. However, there are three more common valid positions. Firstly, Peter is the rock. Second, Peter's faith is the rock. And last, Christ is the rock. Whichever view seems reasonable to you, that is okay. What I do find interesting, though, is in verse 18, after Peter has declared who Jesus is, Jesus then declares who Peter is, who the church is, and its purpose. So there is a knowing in Jesus' identity, which leads to a revelation in our identity, which then gives our purpose. Now, we cannot be like Jesus in his Messiahship. That belongs to him alone. He is Lord. But it is a desire to be like the Lord, for holiness in the way we live, to sacrifice for others, to forgive, to walk in his ways, following him. That is what this new identity is. Have you ever felt like you're not just in a physical battle, but a spiritual one? Things are going wrong around you. The enemy feels like he's the one pulling the strings. Maybe you feel tempted to say or do things that you know you shouldn't. You feel drained, a lack of hope. In this verse, notice how Jesus, he mentions the gates of hell. As we mentioned earlier, the people believed that there was a gate to hell in Caesarea Philippi. And in ancient times, gates, they were important parts of fortifications. They were places that rulers and kings, they would claim to show that they governed the area. To control the enemy's gates was to conquer their city. And gates, they're used to keep things out. They offer defensive purposes. Notice how Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. Satan and the forces of evil, they're on the defense when it comes to Jesus. Jesus and the church are the ones leading the charge. We, the church, are on the attack. And victory is assured. We know this because of the cross. That is where the battle was won. The work and victory of the cross belonged to Jesus, but now we are commanded to take up our cross and follow him. The cross, it both welcomes us in and it directs us out. It is invitation and instruction. It calls us and commissions us. The cross is a call to action. And we see this in verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Have you ever been in a rush to get somewhere and you've misplaced your keys? You know that feeling? You're not going anywhere. You know, you might not be able to get into your car probably won't be able to get into the place you're headed to, won't be able to get back into your house. Keys are important because keys give access. And the keys that God has given the church, they give access to the kingdom. 
Only the church has these keys. Nothing in this world can bring the kingdom. No political party, no ideology, only the church. And the church, the church is us. It's not a building, it's not a program, a course. It is the people of God. And if, if we have the keys to the kingdom, then we, the church, are kingdom bringers. Each one of us is a kingdom bringer. We are called to be a kingdom people who live in a kingdom way, who think and speak the kingdom. Amy Carmichael, who we looked at briefly earlier, she had a kingdom mindset and she accomplished remarkable earthly good. Even from her bed, she wrote most of, the, of her beloved books that documented her journey with Jesus and declared his goodness in suffering. And it came from her love for Jesus. You cannot want the kingdom without first wanting the king. And being a kingdom people with a kingdom mindset means that we declare the truth of who he is and we let the Holy Spirit guide us in our lives. Being a part of the kingdom means that each of us have been given gifts. Are we using those gifts to serve others, to build others up? Are we making all our decisions, big or small, for his glory? Are we being courageous in praying for the sick and seeking his voice to speak into the lives of others? Maybe there is a, somebody at work, a family member, a neighbor, or at school who God's been highlighting to you to share your faith with, to speak of his goodness, just as my friend did. Living in a kingdom way with a kingdom mindset, that is a choice. And when we choose to live this way, those around us, our family members, our friends, our co-workers, they will watch and wonder why. And it's all because of him. And this brings us true joy and happiness. This is where we find our blessing, living for the king and the kingdom. And it all starts with knowing Jesus. When we know him, we truly find ourselves. And then we truly find our purpose. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you are unchanging in your love, mercy, kindness, and unbounding grace. Lord, we pray for a greater revelation of who you are. I pray that you soften our hearts to this truth of who you are, where life challenging and painful experiences has hardened our hearts. Lord, give us a, that heart of flesh that receives the truth of who you are. We pray that this truth is at the forefront of everything that we do, changes the way we think, and helps others to see something of you in our words and actions. We give our praise and adoration all to you because you are worthy. Amen.